is expecting you. Welcome to Thoughts from Aunt Wu, the Avatar podcast where we know the future. Today on our episode, we will be discussing Book 3, Episode 8, The Puppet Master. Today on my panel, I have Corey as usual. Hello. Charles is back. What's up? And a returning guest. Hello, Mitchell. Hello. So, I think we have quite a bit to discuss in this episode, so why don't we get started with our initial thoughts. Mitchell, you're on. You're, you're back. Our guest, you can have the floor. Go ahead. Oh, putting me on the spot. Right, I am. Right. Go. Well, well, let's see. I actually thought that this uh, this episode was very meaningful in us a lot of ways. I think it's one of the first. It's you know it's very significant because we see a more refined aspect, or I guess you could say a more masterful display of bending that is not as common and it's a unique trait to water bending. And at the same time, I think that it's also very significant because it expands a little bit on the effects that this war has had on, you know, other people as well, you know, and how, you know, it, it gives you very much an origin story or it follows up on what happened to all the waterbenders at the South, you know, at the South Water Tribe and, you know, the impacts of that. And even it goes a little bit into the whole idea of these are people that are displaced and, you know, that their motivations, you know, at first it might seem like maybe she's an evil person, the, but she's probably not. She's just someone who suffered, you know, the consequences of being in the, of being a victim of the Fire Nation in this case. Uh, that's about it. All right. Charles, you're up. Yeah, I agree with Mitchell. It's a really mean episode. Um... This is, in, interestingly enough, this is where we start to see the kind of bending that becomes really common in Korra, where it's less just a raw elemental manipulation and more of a, I guess, more subtle uses or more complex uses, which is interesting. Obviously, the overtone of this is super dark. Bending is just tragic on so many levels. Um, I mean, it's a really good episode, just and not that a feel-good one by any means. Yeah. Corey? I, like, love, love this episode so much. Like, I love the horror element of it. I love seeing the war, like, twist a waterbender into, like, you could, again, like, I always love the Star Wars references, like, a dark side user and seeing, like, the dark side of waterbending where... Water bending is supposed to represent healing and and life and and pretty much I remember the episode where Aang was learning fire bending from like that guy who hated fire bending and he hated it because like fire only destroys and he's like but water it can heal and all that but this is an episode where you could use like water for complete destruction and and like evil you say and I love how close Katara got with the woman that trained I forgot her name now but the woman that trained Hama. her. Yeah, Hama, um, and how she, like, as the episode went on and she started to dark underbelly of it, she felt completely betrayed because, like, watching her halfway through get so close to her and, like, really develop a relationship with her and, like, really treat her like a mentor and then have her, like, have a completely 180 by the end of the episode, it's, like, it was amazing. I love, like, 
the red herrings they throw in this episode. Um, overall, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes. This is, right off the bat, probably the darkest episode of this entire series. Um, the only other ones that I think come close are The Storm and Zuko Alone, which, you know, when you look at it, were two of our highest-rated episodes. So, right off the bat, it's pretty clear we like dark episodes of Avatar. Um, this is very interesting on a lot of levels. For one, Charles is right that this is kind of the first episode where we really get the it truly expanded world of bending. I understand that we've had metal bending with Toph and we've had the little bit of combustion bending, but blood bending is, I think, the first time they ask the question of, like, how far could you take these, the ability to manipulate the elements? And that becomes a really important point as we go forward and really is at the heart of the of the mythology of this of this universe that it's about manipulating the elements wherever those elements may be and that's really important um also bloodbending itself becomes a really important characteristic i mean literally being the you know main thrust of an entire book in in Korra and becoming a kind of this this fundamental thing and for its introduction here to, to hit so well it, i think was really important i i don't think if this episode wasn't on this level and, and bloodbending wasn't done with the level of care that it is i think that there's a pretty good chance we don't think of it of bloodbending the, the way we do and we probably don't get book one of Korra. like that just probably doesn't happen because it required this almost visceral like guttural reaction to it and they they, they pull it off extremely well I also think it's kind of interesting that this is one of the few Avatar episodes that has a very traditional A story, B story, where the A and the B stories come together at the end as actually they were one story this whole time, um, with the investigation as to what's going on with the spirit, which turns out to be Hama, and then the Hama story. And that's that's interesting that we we don't get that very often in Avatar. If there are dual stories, they're usually a Zuko story and an Aang story, and they're pretty unrelated. You know, maybe they have some some similarity, same theme, but they're not like they usually don't come crashing together. And that's interesting to see that they went that route in this episode. Um, I also think Corey mentioned the red herrings, and we'll talk about this as we go. But kind of the first thing I want to bring up, and we'll segue into into our episode discussion here. I really like the way they play the kind of obvious, funny creepiness of both Hama and this episode, where they keep, like, making you feel that little bit of uncomfortable, but then, oh, no, it's funny, oh, no, it's funny. And I think that really works for this episode that's going to eventually go as dark it is as it is. But I'm curious what you guys thought, because it is obvious, it is very obvious that Hama is hiding something, that, ha that there's something going on here. Also, one, sorry, one thing before we get into that discussion, because this is the rant that I will continue to go on, and eventually I need to expand on this, like, fully. But don't watch the previously on, and stop doing previously on shows. I, I can't believe how much better this episode is when you don't watch the previously on because it completely gives everything away it's like obvious that she's a waterbender when you watch the fucking previously on well some of it is is important though right i think that previously on in this case it was very much to remind you of key aspects of of the show of, of you know the 
the universe behind it and you know why some things happen obviously yes it's it's a bit of a spoiler but it's also important to like for example someone who maybe you know stopped watching after season two and then is catching up on season three like a year or two later maybe that person will remember everything so i think there's a way to diegetically remind the audience of these things if necessary there is a way like for instance i think a very good use of this a lot of previous leons anymore unless it's like something that i guess ties directly i mean i've had this rant about game of thrones like crazy um and I think this, but a, a good example to me is at the very beginning of this episode, they have Katara tells a little story about her mother, uh, about a story about her mother. And it, that right there is kind of a nice little that reminder. One, that one was unnecessary. I think that the ones after about the, she found a method to find water where she no, could. No, 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 no. She... hold on. What I, I'm not, I'm, I'm ta- what I'm talking about is in the actual episode itself, after the previously on, where Katara starts telling the story, the, the horror story or the ghost story from her mother. That, to mm. me, is an effective way to give the audience a little primer of, oh, yeah, Katara and Sokka's mother was captured by the Fire Nation. Like, that remembrance of that situation. That, to me, is a great way to do it. The actual, like, previously on, there are no waterbenders in the South Pole, I don't understand who that serves. Like, we, if you want to remind us of that, you could remind us in the episode itself and all it does is it makes it obvious that this episode is going to be about the fact that there were no waterbenders in the South Pole. And for an episode that is kind of built upon a reveal, a I mean, pretty big reveal at that with um, with Hama, I really think it cheapens it. I think that it, it becomes like really obvious. And I, I you know, it just don't watch. I'm just saying, if you want a better chance watching the show, don't watch the previously ons. They're they're dumb. Can I uh, make a quick point? Two yeah, quick so you points. you can make actually. a quick point. Go ahead. So one quick point. Um, I, I rewatched the episode, and I remember always recognizing her voice, but not knowing why I recognized the voice. Turns out the voice actress that does her is in, like, everything. She's in, like, The Simpsons. She's, like, Skinner's mom that always yells out to him. And, like, um, Futurama mom. You know, mom in Futurama. And, like, mm-hmm. she's in, like, everything. So she's like, a generic old that. woman in everything? Everything. She's in like everything. I'm like, I'm looking at her, uh, her like voice acting history. She's like in so many cartoons I used to watch, so now it makes sense why I always do recognize her. You, but, do you think that that is a good thing, in the standpoint of because she kind of feels almost so much of the generic old woman? Do you think casting a voice actress with a very like recognizable but not for any specific character is almost like kind of adds to it? Yeah, I like it. They just go like, we need, we need the generic old woman. Find this person. Well, yeah, I kind of think that that's what they did. And it, I think it fits really well. So my second point is this episode, and I never say this about Avatar because they get around it so gracefully, but this episode would benefit from being not kids. I mean, like, PG-13 cartoon where I when she... Uh, this is me jumping ahead. I'm not going to say much about it, but we'll get to it. Like, when she escapes prison, when she first learns blend bending, and just, like, all she does to the guard is, like, knock him out. I, if, if this was it had a higher rating and it wasn't on Nick, you could have done so oh, he much more. So it could have been so much more violent and disturbing to watch, and that would have driven home blood bending in, like, such a better See, way. And I'm, the, yeah, yeah. The game, because the game, I mean, the because the show is PG-13, they go so far, manipulating 
you know that if this was a rated R show, she would be ripping the blood out of people and turning oh, yeah. them to dry shells and, you know, killing every, absolutely everyone. Though the one thing that I didn't, that confused me about this episode is why didn't she let the other waterbenders go? You know, if right. she could get, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that as we, as we go. Let's, let's kind of go a little bit more chronologically because okay. this is one of the, this is a very like chronological step-by-step -step episode. So I want to kind of build up. I'll, uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll throw in a quick point about the previously on. Go ahead. A lot of them aren't great. Sure. Some of them are okay. And obviously on a show by show basis, some are, for some shows, it's going to be more tolerable than others. Um, stuff where either the plot is so ridiculously complex that without, like, a manual, you, <laughs> you're going to need something. Or stuff where the plot is so simple that it's just a, oh, here's a replay of that, some action scene in the last episode. I, I think it pans out there. But stuff like... Um, like, this show and Game of Thrones are not really good places for it. I, I think especially, I, I just to be to put the last bumper on it, I think if you're going to build a, an episode that's built around a reveal, adding anything that's extremely obvious, hinting at it that's not within the episode itself, is a very bad way to do it. I think that, and in this case, is an, an, express, an expressly egregious example of it because of... The fact that the entire episode is built around, oh my god, she's actually a waterbender. And then, oh my god, she's a bloodbender. And there's no reason to cheapen that reveal. And that's my only point here. Alright, so let's get right into this episode uh, discussion. Um, because we start with our, our, our gang in the woods telling, telling ghost stories. And... Um, what did you guys, I mean, right off the bat, like Sokka just kind of being Sokka, um, what did you guys think of this kind of start to this episode? Like, especially with like very, very comedic version of horror before going into the horror. Hey, Katara story freaked me out. I was a little, I'll admit it. I think it was like, it was like, as I said, like it, it was like not misdirect because like you it led into the creepy house with the old lady, which wanted you as the viewer, if you're watching this for the first time, think something's awry right now. And then yeah. it wasn't it wasn't so much comedic in in, in my opinion. Yeah, some of it was comedic. Kids what, I, what I mean by it, comedic it is definitely took on a, uh, it definitely took on a creepy it worked the creepy whole the whole creepy aspect and it it kept it tried to keep it along for the whole show for the whole episode i mean but obviously what i, what I mean no. by creepy though or what i mean by comedic though is that up until the bloodbending reveal the episode keeps doing the setup moment that could go really bad only to say no it's fine it's meet old woman in the woods she's fine she's hiding something it's actually she's a waterbender well, Set you up. as a viewer know that you as a viewer know that she's 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 the culprit, or she's very, very almost certainly the culprit from the beginning. Right? I don't and, think that's as true. I I think that they're what they try in this episode, and I think effectively. I mean, you guys can disagree, obviously, but I think effectively is to keep sort of getting you ready for 
creepy, actually no. Creepy, actually no. And then creepy, oh, way creepier than we thought it was. And I think that's, I think that that's a really effective framing in this episode where they keep, they kind of keep doing that. And I think that's like really, I think it's really effective and I think it makes the, the, the final, the sort of final punch of this is what bloodbending is even more effective. Do you, mm. I mean, I guess in your, Mitchell, you're kind of disagreeing and saying you think it's pretty obvious from the beginning that she was just creepy here and okay, you never well, let your guard down. To be, to be fair, I think that if you're a first-time watcher versus someone who's already seen them before, obviously your, your opinion is going to be skewed. So I kind of went in knowing that she was already someone who was, I guess it's just the power of hindsight, right? You go in knowing that she's someone who is, who is obviously going to be the antagonist in that episode. But it does play, like, I mean, I think that if you just put it to standard storytelling, it just very clearly presents her as the, the most suspicious person in town. And it also, it's the, the show, like, the story is not going to re- put someone who you've never met or at least you've never seen as the, as the possible, you know, person who's, like, you know, who's capturing all these people or kidnapping these people without kind of giving them some exposure. And the only person that you get really, you know, the only real person you get exposure besides the main characters is Hama this episode. But, like, I think they also... I I think what ended up happening was, again, pretend you're watching this episode for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. They they leave you in with the horror stories, and then you're like, as the viewer, you're like, oh, she's... something's wrong with her, and she's evil. And then they give you the red herring where it's like they opened up the box it's just a comb and then you realize oh wait she's from the water tribe she has a tragic backstory she's actually good and we were just wow thinking something completely different and like if you're watching it for the first time i think at the midway point of the episode before she offers the train katara you have completely de or you're desensitized to the fact that she might be the villain you're like oh she's and they were just doing the red herring in the beginning to make you think she she was evil. That's then, true. Up to that point, you kind of had that whole horror aspect to it, and after that, I think that the horror, the whole like horror aspect of the of the episode, got got toned down. Right until the end. So like yeah. right until the training is where it, it went right. But in between that and before that, it, it was taken away completely. Actually. Mm-hmm. But I, I also think critically, even when you get into the training, that it's like the moment where she she takes the water out of the flowers. Her response is, while there certainly is a certain like, philosophical point there about you do, you know, the when you're a waterbender in a strange land, you do what it takes to survive. But it's not like she's almost like giddy about the fact that she destroys these flowers. She's just like, look, they're flowers. They're a useful tool. And I think that that's also important that, that I feel like a lesser show would have had her being like, these are Fire Nation flowers. It's important that we destroy all, like... <laughs> I understand that that's obviously right. bad. It would have been bad, but on some level, a lot of a lot of villain writing, I think, is is quite bad. And I think that this is a good like the when I watched episode, I was I was I was struck well, by how much I really was able to let my guard down with Hama, even though I know what's coming, and not that it just comes out of nowhere. If you watch the episode knowing she's evil, Mitchell's totally right that so, it's it's there. But I think that they do a good job of, of, especially with Katara as our sort of as our our POV, 
let, allow us as people to let our guard down around this woman and, and like, start to trust her and start to, you know, look at her as a teacher and get excited about it. And then only to be, you know, punched in the stomach or, you know, I guess have our blood punch ourselves in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Although this show, uh, this episode is very, at the same time, it gives you such a very, it gives us such a big contrast, right? Between the, the fate of people who suffered, you know, of, of outsiders who suffered under the Fire Nation against, you know, uh, as opposed to this village, which is, you know, you know, quite a, you know, peaceful village, you know, there are no active issues or there's no subjugation or anything of the sort in, in this village. But, you know, but here you have someone who experienced both of these issues, both of these realities under the Fire Nation, right? I mean, I think I think that actually segues into a really a really good point I want to talk about further. So thank you, Mitchell, for that. Mm. It's interesting that this is the first episode in book three that we really get a full deep dive into the Fire Nation is evil. And for a book that is set in yeah. the Fire Nation, it's interesting that it really took us. I mean, if you look, go literally, we could go through the episodes like Awakening is about Aang. Nothing to do with that. It's not even in the Fire Nation. Headband is actually the kids in the Fire Nation are pretty good. We don't have to, you know, it's fine. Sokka's master, nothing to do with it. Painted lady, a little bit with the, you know, kind of environmentalism. But in reality, it's let's help the people here in this village who are being polluted. It's mm -hmm. the runaway, nothing to do with it. It's Avatar and the Fire Lord, nothing to do with it. Um... Am I missing an episode in there? I have to be. Because this is episode 8. What am I missing? Um, I don't remember, but you get my point. It's interesting that it took us to this point to get a real, like, oh yeah, the Fire Nation is at war and has committed genocide and tried to rid the world of all other benders. And I think it's it's interesting that in the book that is in the Fire Nation, that in theory should be the most focused on that, it took us till now, but then when it does go there, it goes there. I mean, they, they go there in a way that's almost, like, shocking how brutal it is with, with both the raids and then getting to see inside a prisoner of war camp. I think it's the duality of it. You get a comparison. You know, even Aang says, you know, this is a this is a village that is, you know, almost perfectly in tune with nature, and you know, you, you get this whole you get this whole scenery of how peaceful it is, and you know how beautiful it is, and well preserved, and you know, it's not the industrial fire nation that you're used to seeing, you know, with all the war machines and stuff. But at the same time, it talks about the reality of the militaristic fire nation and what they do to, you know, other vendors and you know, and how they treat them. Yeah, um, it, it just, like I said, it's just, it's interesting to me that, you know, th th it really is a gut punch. And, you know, you compare this to Imprisoned, which is the other time that we were in a, um, we were in a prisoner of war camp, uh, literally. And that was back in book one, and I think that that was back a little bit before they were willing to take as big of risks as they made here, because while that episode is really powerful and you do get to see the, 
the crushing of spirit of the people, they're not held in cages. They're not like literally dressed in, you know, in rags to the point that they're like chained up. Like it's, there is a difference between what we saw in imprisoned and what we see here. And I think that that's, it's interesting to see that, that change between the two, because I really do think that this is, you know, now we're in book three, this show is, is significantly more popular. It's clearly, I, I think it's clear that they had a little bit more leeway from, from Nickelodeon to maybe do what they want. I mean, I'm, I'm almost blown away. I mean, Corey, you talked a little bit about like this episode would have benefited from, you know, not being on Nick from being more of an, a you know, full on adult show, but I'm almost stunned at how far they were willing to go in this episode already. I mean, that was a that is a brutal shot with the the, the water in the cup moving up to her. I mean, that is some really dark stuff, right? Yeah, I was I was more referring to the prison breakout scene, which was very tame in my opinion. She like, you know, like well, it's, not- it's a PG thirteen show. Well, not even PG thirteen. It's straight up PG. It's on okay. It's a PG show. Nickelodeon. Not going to kill people. They're not going to. They do kill people. Okay, fine, but they're not going to torture them not on or drain yeah. the blood of drain the blood out of their body, or you know cause a prison massacre because she very well could, right? Well, let me. It, it, well, actually, let me push back on that for a second because couldn't you make the argument that she is at that point in the prison is still very new to this thing, and to take the time to pull the blood out of him. Which okay. theoretically would be hard to do. I mean, we see pulling the air out of someone is the other people, right? Because well, that's that's different. That that we'll get to in a second. But okay. the actually, I'm gonna get to it. I think that ties into it. Do you think that there's an argument that she is just all she cares about in that moment is her freedom, and she doesn't know how much effort it's gonna take to do this, so she does the minimal possible. She incapacitates one guard, doesn't draw any attention to herself. It's not like this guy is screaming uncontrollably because the blood is being poured pulled out of his body. And she's not blood bending a bunch of people at once to try and free all the other people. She is just in pure survival mode. I'm out. I mean, that's, yeah, that's certainly one logic, but, you know, if you... If you believe in the min-max of bloodbending at its absolute limits, then just froze a little bit of that intracranial fluid, guys. Yep. You know. Well, I'll, I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> she wasn't. She she wasn't a full master of it at that point because that was the first time she successfully performed it on a human on a living person. And remember, if she gets, if she doesn't escape in that moment, she is dead. Yeah. Like, there is no way they would let someone who had that power live. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, if they knew she escaped and how she escaped, wouldn't they have been looking for her more, I guess, you know, wouldn't they have been looking for her harder? Because she is a big, very big potential threat, right? Yeah, but it's and pretty hard. Like, that. it's not like they have but- photos. Yeah. They have drawn pictures. Yeah, but it's it's hard to... Someone can disappear into a country. 
I just like I, I truly think that if they had more liberty to do whatever really whatever they want, I, I think like the guard would have like she would have made the guard like kill himself or like it would have been like a very like graphic scene there. I think they and again they make it up for it a lot with what happened with Katara at the end of the episode. That was like really disturbing. Um, but I, I feel like it, it, it they had constrictions on how far they can go. So that you know where yeah, I mean, look, that. that's that's undoubtedly true and i think you, you are right that if you were to take th- this concept of bloodbending and really move it to its extremes you can go to an incredibly dark place that said i think that that might be asking for a lot and i, and I think i'm you know like i said i'm astounded as, that they went as far as they did i really am well, the whole yeah. The whole aspect of it is, is already pretty well, pretty dark. Well, let me ask you a question about bloodbending itself. Because something I actually like about it, especially in, in, in Last Airbender, is that it feels... It's not mind control. It's very clearly, like, moving parts of the body. And it's like, I like that the motion is very un... Like, it's weird. They're very floppy and just kind of moving randomly. Like, it doesn't... I think it would be really, it would be much harder to believe, and I wouldn't like it as much if it was like literally mind control, and they just like moved like normal humans. But instead, they move so almost. It, it does feel like they're almost being held. Like there's there is a there's a very physical, tactile feel to it, and I think that that is important because bending is is across the board so tactile and so like grounded within your moving body. Now I know that in theory, if you could actually move water with your mind. You probably couldn't do this, like in you know, in a purely technical sense. But I do like that it, it feels it feels very believable to me within the context of the world with how it's how it specifically it's shot. And like what I bloodbending, like this episode reminded me like how awesome the concept of bloodbending is. Like as I mentioned when we opened I just up want to make episode. it clear for everyone out there that Corey has just said on the record how awesome bloodbending is. It it's is. Just, I just want everyone to know that Corey is a sadistic SOB. No, I, like, it's, it, it's, it is, is kind of cool, right? Because it's the first time you see, I don't know, so I could be wrong, but it's the first time you see bending outside of the generic bending. Right? Oh, besides metal bending, of course. But it's, it's, a, it's a true mastery of, of the skill, even though it was attained through and it was also something that was attained through hardship, right? So it's cool because you get to see, you know, what like the limits or what the what the pinnacle of bending can can get to. Oh yeah, I completely. She's like undoubtedly a master, but like the coolest part about blood bending to me is you again. You only used to see blood bending for good, and like as like a viewer. You can't you imagine water bending. Water bending. I'm sorry. Water bending being anything but either like if it's going to be used as a weapon, it's like a very graceful thing, more of self-defense, healing, um, and like seeing the complete opposite, the the most evil. And, and you could argue blood bending is the most evil bending form there is. Like it's 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 undoubt. The visuals in this episode drove it home. Like seeing the life completely get drained from the flowers where you see like a black pit where she drained the water and the trees exploding and just seeing death 
and death and death and like how gruesome it is to like control some of the blood bending and the noises when you hear the noises of what it sounds like it is 10 out of 10 like the complete opposite of what water bending is and that's what drives it home as being such a cool concept it's like the, the no doubt the dark side and like it, it, it's just you don't see like lightning bending is like very cool but it's not that much different than firebending in terms of it's they're both destructive they're both you know flashy like that but like bloodbending is such the opposite of waterbending and that's what i really like about the whole concept and the lore behind it like the whole lore behind it just makes it such a cool concept to me and i think it's also nice just kind of with that the fact that like waterbending can heal and it's kind of why can waterbenders heal well because the body is made up of a lot of water so especially like cuts and things like that, they're actually kind of manipulating the body um, in a certain way. And it's almost, on some level, you can make an argument that like bloodbending is almost a more like base level of waterbending than healing. Now, obviously, because it's so like, it's, it's something that most people wouldn't even think of because of how like disturbing it is. Healing is something that is taught and, and commonplace while bloodbending isn't. But it's sort of, I, I agree kind of from the lore perspective, it, it's another thing that like ties these together that because waterbending is the thing that we already know water can have an impact on the body. We already know that waterbenders can on some level manipulate the human body to see it kind of now used for, you know, nefarious, you know, pure evil reasons is, is quite, it's a really nice duality. And, and I mean, I, this, this gets to something I won't, that's much, you know, later, but we're done. We haven't gone chronologically so i'm just gonna stop trying this we got a real water bending water bender on water bender fight and not a kind of you know as much as katara versus paku is a great fight it's kind of a you know it's not there's no malicious intent there i mean they're not trying to kill each other this was two master waterbenders going at it and you know i think if there is one complaint that you can have about tla is that there's a lot of Waterbenders fighting firebenders. There's a lot of airbenders fighting firebenders. Earthbenders fighting firebenders. There's a Earth gets a little bit on the the bad side with the Dai Li and some of the stuff with the Earth Queen, but for the most part, it's usually something against fire. And to see two waterbenders going at it is really like it's just cool to see. It's like wow, oh yeah, this, now you're fighting with the same with the same stuff with the same capabilities, and that's really like that's really cool. And I I love that we actually got to see it. Yeah, and against like the visuals of just like the full moon, it was like such a water bender fight. Just like the aesthetics, the visuals, the setting, everything, and it was like again pure chaos. It was like trees were exploding. Like it, it and Katara was at full form that fight. Like she never, to in my opinion, up to this point looked so good and so, has come so far as a water bender. And, I mean, again, you're right, it doesn't matter, we're not in chronological order anymore, but is it needless to say the ending of the episode was perfect, where she just, like, broke down crying and she feels, yeah. like, let's, violated? Let's, let's hold off on the ending a little bit. Let's, let's just say the end, because I, I do want to have a quick sort of tangential conversation, because Katara isn't the only one who was in this episode, so let's, 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 we'll go back to this, we'll get to the ending and the final fights in a bit, but I want to have a quick discussion about... Um, the the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. So, right off the bat, I mean, goddamn, Ang, 
can you do something in any of these episodes? <laughs> like, every week now, I feel like I'm like, God, we're back to book one. Aang is completely useless. Aang does nothing in this episode. Well, he's, he's going through his soul search. I, I mean, I guess, but like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I guess, one of the things that usually is common to, you know, the, the hero who has fallen is that they are faced with the challenge, well, they're faced with a dilemma of, of, of action or inaction, right? Or they're undecisive because of, for whatever reason, you know, they're maybe they're blocked by past trauma or whatnot. They're not, unable to act when they when you know the situation demands them to act, and so they're plagued by an action. I don't think in this case Aang is pla- is plagued by indecision or something. I think it's just like I mean, part of it is just the situations and and the things that he gets into. But it's just like he did, he did do the right thing, right? He they went to help rescue. Front, I'm know. not. I'm not saying that like Ang isn't like sitting in his room moping all the time. That's not yeah, what I'm saying. It. I'm just saying that it we yeah. it really does feel like we're back to Goofy Kid Ang. We're back to Book One, not having an impact on anything around him. Ang and he's kind of mm-hmm. just Katara or Sokka doing things, and Ang kind of incidentally is there. And it's just interesting. I mean, obviously, this is going to change very quickly. I mean, we have one more episode, and then we're into an invasion that's, you know, pretty Aang-focused. And the second half of this book is very Aang-focused. So I'm not, like, I understand that this is going to change really quickly. But it's just kind of fascinating that they really just took the time and been, like, Katara episode, Sock episode, Toph episode, Katara episode, Katara. Like, there is, we haven't had an Aang-centered episode, you know, in a while. I mean, I guess there's Avatar and the Fire Lord, but that's, like, all flashbacks, like, of Aang taking action. Mm-hmm. Um, another good one. Sokka doesn't do much in this episode, but he's great. Like, this is a this is a real Sokka heat check uh, episode. Like, he's, he was on the floor for seven minutes, but he scored points. Every shot he took, I think, went in. The... <laughs> When he starts yelling about how the moon is great and rules the sky with lunar goodness, that is just everything. I am Sokka, good job, man. Well, I mean, he's dating the moon, so... Oh, he's, he's not dating anymore. He, he dated the moon. Well, that's why he has a lot of good things to say about it. I, mean, I, I understand that. I'm just saying that the word lunar goodness... He loves the moon. And just other stuff, like, the way he's, like, skeptical of Hama and, like, goes way over the line with, like, breaking into her freaking attic. Like, it's just Sokka. Like, I, I have no other way to describe it other than just it's, it's it, this is who Sokka is, and it's great. Hmm. Um, Toph didn't really do anything in this episode, along with that. She, she, she punched the door. She did punch a door, and... <laughs> She did question the goodness of sea prunes slash ocean kumquats. She was also she was also the key to finding. She did. That, that, that is true. Oh. I'll, actually, that is that is one thing I want to I want to say that that is a quick a quick point on that that I actually liked, and this kind of goes with my earlier thing about ways to prime the audience. I like that little key scene 
with her forming the Earth key to, to open the box as sort of another one of these interesting use of bending, kind of thinking through just the how you can use bending in different ways. And I think that right there is a good, like, that was a good primer again for, oh yeah, you could theoretically kind of bend Earth until it became a key that would fit into a lot. Like, that's kind of, that would make sense. That's sort of a fun little way to do it. And then to have that as another, like, it almost makes you think there, like, oh, what would be other things you could do with earth bending or maybe water bending? Like, what are some interesting things? And it ties back to what I said last week about how it being that great, the sweat from Katara, it's great that that happened in the episode before this because it's that, oh, yeah, you could pulse, you know, sweat. That could be used as water, and there's water in the human body. I think that that's, like, as these little these little primers, like, this to me is the is the way to set an audience up for this kind of thing without having to be like extremely heavy handed with like, remember how there's no waterbenders in the South Pole? <laughs> yes, I'm still harping on this. It bothers me. That's fair. Um, all right. So I guess let's let's get back to that. And uh, the last thing I want to say kind of on, on the, the Corey point, was anyone else as like, horrified by the vein shot of Hama as I was. That was a little creepy. Like you, I mean, I, again, I understand what you're saying, Corey, but that is a, that was something like that. I was a little like, wait, they put this on a, an in children's show. Although I, could, graphic. I feel like you could just say that that's her, like that because she, I, I guess you could call it tapping into the dark side or, you know, or whatever you want to call it. But you know that she takes joy in, in in this particular you know period of the month where it's the full moon and she's able to I guess you know take revenge on those that you know, wronged her. No, and I understand. I'm just saying, like you know, again, you're about to to show off blood bending, so in theory, showing us the thing that carries blood is important. But I don't know. That was that shot was 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 pretty. Was for another one of the things that's further than I would have expected them to go, and they did it. So I, I guess I'm kind of, I don't know. I, I I understand. I continue saying I understand what you're saying, Corey, but I I kind of think they went pretty far. Yeah, sure, and yeah, I mean, of course they did the most they can with what they have, but it was one other thing. Corey, they could have gone far. They could have gone far. In my opinion, although that would have broken probably oh. PG rating. Well, it's not technically a PG rating. This isn't a movie. It's what TV. Yes, but a kid still, they would break out of kids TV. It was, it was. I think that even was already pretty, you know, or at least a show that, for for its precedent, it set a pretty powerful message for you know the audience that it was presenting itself to. Oh, yeah, it'd be Y seven, I think. Hmm. All right, so let's talk about the actual fight itself. Corey, you kind of began to talk about it a little bit, so why don't why don't you talk about the actual like full on bloodbending fight, and then eventually with the um, Hama going after Aang and Sokka. I just want to. I will. Let me just quickly bring it back one point and mention the origin of like as you said, Mark earlier. Like a lesser writer could have done a lesser writer could have made bloodbending just like. 
it's a forbidden water bending technique that's always existed, and she's just evil and wanted to pull it up and become powerful for the sake of being powerful. But she did it out of necessity because of like a tragic backstory because of like wartime. And, like, you know, she obviously lost herself to revenge. But, like, that's a lot more complex and has more wrinkles in it than, like, any, like, you know, well, like, does that make sense? Yeah, well, actually, let's, let's actually dive, dive into that. Do you guys think that, one, is bloodbending, by definition, something that should never be allowed? We, I mean, it, just to be frank, Katara outlaws the technique once we get into later in, 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 in their lives. One, do you think that that's warranted? And two, remove the punitive stuff she does to the villagers, which I think we all can agree these are random villagers. They're not, they shouldn't be, you know, captured and put in a prison. Remove that. Do you mm. think Hama has been evil from the day she started bloodbending the rats, or when does she become evil? I think she you, becomes we're starting, so sorry. Let me let, 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 let Corey answer my question, and then we'll go around the room. I think the longer she stayed in the cell and she dwelled on, like, what happened to her family and what her tribe, the more she just went down the rabbit hole. Like, I, I think, maybe, like, I, you could argue that the second she got arrested and the door shut, but I, I wouldn't say that. I think it was, like, you don't see the ta- passes of time, but the longer she stayed there, the more she started losing her mind. And then, like... When she started playing around with the rats, that's when she started like seeing like a glimmer of hope for saving herself. And then that's like once you start down that, you 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 fall right in. And that's when I think that's exactly when like she just fell down the rabbit hole. All right, Mitchell. I think that she. I I think that at the very least, she when she broke out of prison, she wasn't evil per se i think she was definitely someone who's out for revenge i think that somewhere along the way she probably became worse and worse and i think that period of transition is what caused her to i don't i don't even want to call it evil because honestly i don't find it to be that evil it's it's almost like in a way i almost feel a little sympathetic towards her because imagine being someone who you know is ripped out of your own family. Well, first fights a war, sees all of your comrades, you know, slowly disappear and get captured by the Fire Nation, and then you yourself are captured and to and you know, put in horrible conditions, and you manage to escape. And I guess at that point you're so broken from all the trauma of your past that, you know, you just want to fight back however you can. You know, maybe breaking into the prison is not viable she would get herself killed so her revenge is taking revenge on anyone from the fire nation that she sees right in a way i'm not saying that she's right but it's i can see how the justification behind her actions in a way if that makes any sense charles um so for whether the technique should have been banned out right i I don't think so as with everything the Avatar universe and the the whole sorry a big part of Korra is about this everything can be used for both the good and the bad um bloodbending yeah we don't see a lot of good uses of it as you mentioned the whole book one of Korra is a features of bloodbender as the primary villain but those aside you know you 
it's not that hard to imagine a, a good use for it. It is Physical actually therapy, getting people yeah. out from, uh, you know, if no airbenders available or if vendors available, quick way to get people out from precarious uh, situations or if they have the cardiovascular problems, forcing you, you maintaining better uh, blood flow, blood pressure. Well, let's, let's hold on. Let, let's remove like del- like completely obviously good acts that can be used with it. Like I, I don't think anyone. I, I don't even think Katara would say you shouldn't. You wouldn't use blood bending if you could literally like save someone's life if they were falling from a building and you bended their body. Like. Let's let's remove that aspect of it because it's a little like it's kind of a, like an obvious like sure. part of it. Do you think that bloodbending in the way that Hama does it is fundamentally different than other forms of aggressive I am trying to kill you forms of bending? Or do you believe that it's all the same? That intention is what matters, technique doesn't. I think it's different from the standard forms of bending you see in The Last Avatar. I think it's not really as different from some advanced forms of bending we start to see in core and the ones that you know you could conceivably imagine from just the context of the universe as a whole. The whole stuff with airbenders forcing someone into a vacuum and having them suffocate is not exactly a pretty picture either. Well, the one difference there, though, is you can make an argument that murder is illegal. If you're designing a legal system, and I'm talking to a law student right now, so I'm very quickly going to get myself into trouble with this, but (laughs) when Zaheer pulls the air out of her body, of anyone's, the Earth Queen's body or any of the bodies, he murders them. That is a crime... We all agree what the crime is. He used the air to do that. Bloodbending itself is against the law, regardless of whether or not you have killed someone. Do you think that that is, is a justifiable point? Do you think that's, if you're writing a logbook, would you include that law? Is my question. Uh. I mean, technically, all bending against other people should be considered a crime, right? That's just straight up battery. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and I think again, that's like that's like getting into the the age restriction of the show. If we, if this was a rated R show, fire bending would always set you on fire and like be horrific. Earth bending would crush you and like fucking make you bleed, and, like. Well, keep, no, I, that I'm going to push back against because that to me isn't it's a kid's show thing. That to me is it's a fantasy thing. Like, just because they don't, like, the people aren't, the characters aren't acting like normal humans isn't because it's a kid's show. I think it's just because it's fantasy. I mean, would Avatar be better if... You blast. It was one fire blast, and then the person died, and then no, that course, was it. No, of course not. But like, but that's where like you're talking about. Where do you want to? Why is blood bending bannable, but the opportunity to set someone on fire? So you, so you're bending. saying no, 
Bloodbending is no different from other forms of bending. That's the Absol- question I'm getting, trying to get you to answer. And my answer is, I mean, no, it's a, actually, it's a very tricky question because, like, blood, like, and also, I think that also dives into this episode, too, is the way, A, the writers are framing bloodbending, and B, the way Katara definitely views bloodbending is that it violates you. It mm-hmm. literally takes control of you and, and, like, warps you and, like, it literally violates you as a person. And that, like, can go into, like, a whole new set of debates while, like, so I see, A, what the writers are saying about it and be what Katara certainly thinks about it. So it's more, I don't know. I can't give you a yes or a no. I don't have a, an opinion. Well, I mean, it's a hard question. Why... I know. That's the point. Yeah. I mean, but that's kind of why I was comparing it to some of the implications of some of the more advanced forms of bending in that a lot of them seem to take away a person's, or not the user's, but the user's opponent's ability to control their own you know, control themselves. Well, let me ask you a direct, a direct comparison between two. Sure. So you have combustion bending and you have this. Now let's assume for a minute that we're removing any combustion bending as the use, the legit uses for dynamite. So we're not yeah. talking about blowing yeah. up a mountain to mine. We're not like... Do you think... I? Because I think what you're getting at is those two things are very similar in that there's essentially really no way to defend yourself against someone blowing up the air next to you and someone taking control, literally moving your arm from yourself and, you know, I don't know, stabbing yourself with it. Yeah. Uh, I would put those... The idea is, or in my opinion, the idea would be what is defensible, right? It's like, in real life, if you got into a, a drunken bar fight and you're just... You know, people are punching each other. All right, that that's that's not good, but at the same time, you shouldn't be going to jail for life for it either. On the other hand, someone starts t- takes out a gun or a you know knife and starts swiping or shooting. It's 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 like an escalation well, kind of it's, thing. It's it's this. It's essentially this degree. difference. It's the if you defend your if you let's say you get in a fight in self defense and you. You know, in self-defense, you you know, you kill someone, but it's it's one hundred percent self-defense. There's no debate. They were trying to kill you. You have self-defense laws. You are going to be fine. However, if you were to use mustard gas to defend yourself, that's still a crime because mustard gas cannot be owned by a civilian and used. Okay, but I think it depends on the. It's it's very specific. You need to have mustard gas in your possession at all times. If you're a blood bed, if well, if you're a water bed, okay, I I see what you. What mean. I'm saying is, you're allowed to ca- like you're allowed to carry pepper spray, but yeah. you're not allowed to carry a nerve agent in your pocket. How yeah. do you control it though? I mean, I, I think that's that's the thing. How do you how do you ban someone from besides the fact of saying that it's a taboo technique? Right. Literally, they made it illegal, and if you were caught doing it, you were banished. Or in the case of um, Yacon, and took his bending. <laughs> like they made it illegal. Okay. It's against the law. By the way, that shit is the most. That is. We'll talk about that one day and how fucked up that is. Yeah, that's broken. Shit, reaching inside someone. 
But, they, no, obviously I understand what you're getting at. And, you know, these are questions of degree. No, no one is saying, I'm not saying that the mustard gas a defensible use even in production of life in that context. But here, I think it might... It's hard to say whether it would be that equivalent or it would be closer to uh, someone pulled a gun on you and you pulled out a yeah semi-automatic or something. Whatever, well, whatever. yeah, I, that's... No, I, I think that... I think that I mean Corey kind of said it that there, obviously there isn't a you know an answer to this. This is a philosophical question about whether or not something like this is a is it is more of a violation than the simple assault aspect of hurting another human being. I would uh, I argue guess... that functionally, the way blood bending works is worse than other forms of assault. That there is something fundamental about controlling another person's body and, and essentially forcing them to do things against their will that is at its core worse than if you were to simply hurt them in another way. Even if the outcome is exactly the same. That stabbing someone is not as bad as blood bending a knife in their hand and having them stab themselves. Oh yeah, no. I, Even I, though the result is they got stabbed. I mean, I agree with that, but to me, it's again, it runs on the you know defensibility analysis. Like it's standard bending, there's stuff you do way, mm-hmm. but things like I think I think if one were to ban uh, blood bending, and again. In this context, without the you know the good uses, or saving use to save life, then um, I'd agree it should have been banned. There should also have been a ban on the fucking like explosion bending, the vacuum stuff. Well, uh, the vacuum stuff, it was hard. You wouldn't have had to do it because there was one airbender, or you know four, and it's a little. And I mean, I. I <laughs> It's hard to say if combustion bending is legal. I like mean, that's just, that's you just only ever see two anything. people do it. But well, it's assuming it's, whatever the status, I I would have argued that it should be illegal. I if think it that more just common. like everything else, though, blood bend or what do you call the special the the peak bending skills, right? They they're only achieved by people who of incredible skill. I would like to say because it's not like any waterbender can do it, right? It definitely requires either a lot of skill or practice, and you need to be really good at it, right? I, I don't know if that's just as true as you think that it is. I, I think that bloodbending is a little bit closer to a lot of people can do it, but it's just people don't. Like Katara, no, 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 who no, is no, a no. master waterbender, picks it up kind of instantly. Wait. I think no. that Katara has also been established as some exception from the beginning of the show, though. Corey, you were about to say something? Because what makes her, like, a supermaster that really, like, gives you all the, the flags that she's, like, better than the average waterbender is, she teaches Katara, and this is another first thing you see, we didn't actually have to even mention it yet, how you can just 
pull water out of the moisture in the air. You it's not as easy as it seems. Yeah. Right? It's, it's the Katara is definitely. I'm not saying well, that it's course, really throughout easy. Throughout the show, people say people say that Katara is definitely a much more talented waterbender than most people would assume. Right? I'm not saying that it's easy, and I'm not saying that Katara isn't a master. She clearly is. What I'm saying is. I don't know if it's true that bloodbending on the full well, moon is as is as incredible a feat of bending as some of the other things we see and is more about a mindset change than it is about a physical difficulty. That once you remove the, the mental barrier of, I'm going to do this, I wonder if it's actually as well, hard. I think that it's it it it's not so much about just this. I think at least at the very least, from what I understood from Hama's practice with the rats and then into people, is you need to still have a basic understanding, and, and that's the that's kind of the sort of play, right? Where you need to understand the human biology, just like you need to understand how yes, humans work true. to be able to heal. You also need to be able to do that to bloodbend efficiently. I think that the more you, it, it definitely requires. Obviously, you could do it, but you might not. You might not be able to control someone as properly if you don't like know the finesse behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think the same applies to bloodbending. You definitely need to be good at it. Mm -hmm. I think so. At the very least, the requirement is that you are right. And there are only so many masters out there at the very that, or at least that's what I sort of get. Mm -hmm. We, like, I guess, because the show is 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 revolving around you know the avatar and his teachers, they're all going to be exceptional people. Mm -hmm. So I think Tara is not a good example. You could get I don't know like Joe the Waterbender, and maybe he won't be able to bloodbend, even though he practices for fifty years, a hundred years. Uh, or so. Even Hama, for example, she it took her a long time for her to understand the concept of bloodbending. Because she was able to understand the concept, she could show, I guess, Katara being who she is, she was able to understand the concept, but I don't think it's as easy to grasp mm -hmm. as as you say. Yeah, alright, maybe you're right. Uh, oh, I guess I never answered your second question. Uh, real quick, she probably started, she probably got broken in prison, and then after escaping, uh, before, after the bloodbending rat is basically irrelevant, it's a continuous thing while she was in there, and then after she got out, seeing, like, people of the nation that tortured her and confined her, living normal, happy lives, probably did not help that psychological yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I did mention earlier the idea of we're in the Fire Nation and we get we get strikingly little dissection of, oh, yeah, the Fire Nation is evil. On the positive side of that, because I think that there is a, a positive part of it, you're right that the Fire Nation is remarkably peace. Like, it's remarkably good to just be in the Fire Nation. Like, other than the Painted Lady with this random, you know, poor village on this river— it seems like it's pretty, like, life is pretty fine. It's not, the war clearly hasn't touched them. There hasn't been fighting on the homeland, yeah. at least in the last the ones, 50 years. They're the ones, because the fight is not in the fire nation. Yeah. 
And to compare the wandering the Earth Kingdom from destroyed town to, you know, downtrodden area that was that's clearly like you can see the horrors of war. There is an argument. There is a nice part of the fact that when they're in the Fire Nation, things are pretty good. It's actually pretty much everyone's okay. It's really only after you know we're. And then eventually, you know, we're going to see this invasion. It's like, yeah, the, the citizenry of the Fire Nation, life's good. Of course they're, like, okay with the things that are going on. No, no I know. They don't feel it. No, and I think that, Charles, I think that that's, that also plays into what you're saying, that it's not like Hama went into the Fire Nation and saw the same people, saw people with the exact same feelings that she was having but about her. And these were equal enemies bashing each other, and she became against war it's that she saw these people in the fire nation as wow their lives are really good why do they get to live so so nicely when their leaders are committing atrocities throughout the world there's some real uh, <laughs> there's there's some real germany comparisons here yeah in a way it really is well at least Germany did get bombed. I was going to say there's some U.S. comparisons well, okay. with Germany some wars that are on. But at the very least of the beginning, you know, if we're going to yes. use Germany as the example, because they weren't, fa- they weren't, in- well, I, I don't want to say they weren't involved in the war, but the country of Germany was not involved in the war. You know, the effect people had. Although, know, that's- actually, we probably shouldn't say Germany. We probably yes. should say Japan since, you know, that's okay. what the Fire Nation is actually based on. Uh, fine, fine. <laughs> Which had very similar situations going on yes. here with Japan and China. People, as I talk people, to multiple people who are, you know, Chinese. Yeah, the people don't recognize the the, the atrocities of the nation because they're not going through hardship, right? If that's if that's the easiest way to put it. Right, their life is good for them. They're prospering. Yes, you know, they have control of all the resources possible, and you know. Until we started dropping bombs and then two very big bombs, the life in Japan was a lot better than life in China during yes. World War Two. Yes. Well, we needed to bring it back to some kind of real world something, you know. Yes. True to, true to, our, true to our form, guys. Especially with Mitchell here. Oh, you know. Were you? Well, you were here for the. I know you were here for the whole like feminism debate of uh, water of water uh, the waterbending master. I remember that. Um. All right. I think that's. I think that's kind of all I got to say on this. Any 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 closing thoughts? Any, oh, actually, I guess we didn't really talk about the ending. So let's talk about the ending quickly. Um, good job, guys. You didn't add a stupid joke at the end of this episode. You let it just play out with Katara sobbing, and that's good. Good job. It was the right way to end this episode. (laughs) If this was book one, Sokka would have made some dumb joke, and it would have been all happy. That would not have been good. You don't like you don't like frozen tree frogs, Mark? Come on. I'm I'm going to kill you. I'm going to blood bend your mouth shut. Hey, here in the United States, that's uh that's uh super illegal. Um 
I don't know, guys. I don't think we are good at taking action against things that should obviously be banned, but hmm. we don't ban them because of, you know, an amendment. Yeah. Oh, the time. All right. Yes, I'm talking about gun control. Really? Uh, um, anyone have anything to say about the ending before we wrap up? No. I'm gonna. Well, I've got a thing about the moment that Katara actually uses bloodbending. Okay, go ahead. Um, in that. Yeah, she bends it. Yeah, it's a terrible. Ter- yeah, in general circumstances. It should be, in my opinion, should have been something that isn't allowed. But in the extreme, like the extreme of the extreme, where it's a, like this scenario, you have no choice. If you don't act, something horrible will happen. Uh, although she feels really guilty for it, it you know it. It would be really bad on her character if she didn't feel bad about it. I, I just had a, had, a, had a thought that I wanted to, to bring up on that note. Yeah. Clearly, there is a very simple comparison to the unforgivable curses in Harry Potter. Especially, in this case, the imperious curse of to bloodbending. And just in general, of the these three curses that, in Harry Potter... The, they are against the law. If you use one of them on another human being, you will go to Azkaban for the rest of your life. But That's everyone uses them. However, <laughs> throughout the story, we do see quite a bit of good guys using the spells, both for kind of Especially their in intended reasons of we have no choice and we just have it's a war, as well as. Maybe some interesting reasons that are slightly less, maybe not as nefarious and more of, okay, this is just a use of this particular spell. See, everything that is slapped with this is a game. We stopped hearing you, Mitchell. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me better? Yeah. I'm just saying everything that is slapped with this is against ends up getting used against the law. It's just, it's just how it works, man. Wow. Your, I mean, your, your this... Brazilian is showing. Damn. <laughs> 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 Nothing I just said is untrue. But I, I guess I mean, my, my, my question is, A, do you think that, that's a, that that comparison is as clear as I do? And two, do you see a certain, some degree of parallel with there were moments where Harry was pushed into using some in, using unforgivable curses in a similar way to Katara here, where it's like, in this case, she just had no choice. And then, you know, this jumps ahead into another, uh, a much later episode, but you have Southern Raiders when she uses it, kind of similar to Harry using the Cruciatus curse against Bellatrix, where that one moment where he's been pushed to such rage against someone who, you know, killed a parental figure, actually a very similar scene in reality do you do you think like i'm i'm seeing a very strong parallel here i think there's a pretty good a uh, good comparison there but to me uh, harry's actions especially towards the uh, 
end of that series are a lot less justifiable than Katara's. Well, like I'm... you got you got pissed off, so you, you used one of the one of the only three. Well, unfor- quote, unquote, Katara does the same thing in Southern Raiders. I mean, no, no, but c- comparing to this specific instance, no, I, I understand. I know. What I'm saying is this is a little bit more like. Harry using the Imperious Curse on goblins and Gringotts. Which... I, I, I wouldn't even agree there, because there are definitely alternative ways they could have gone around that. Well, okay. they're like they're like 18-year-olds who have absolutely no idea what... Give them... So what you're saying is it's Dumbledore's fault. Okay, I agree. Yes, okay. Yes. Move, Dumbledore's move, moving on. Okay. Well, I mean... Wrong franchise, guys. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this when we get to Southern Raiders, because I, I, I really do want to dive into that in that particular moment. Sure. Um, but for, th- for this particular one, it's very clear, and they set it up in this way, that there, there's no alternative for her to save her friend mm-hmm. but to use this you know, horrible technique. And at mm-hmm. that point, it's, can you stand by your principles and let horrible things happen? Or will you, you know, for the sake, in this case, literally, of the world, since Aang's mm-hmm. the Avatar, can, what, can you put those aside? Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this question, then. Do you, yeah. do you think that Katara and Hama were in the same mindset when Hama escaped from prison? No. I don't think so. What I'm saying is, do you think that these were both two ostensibly good people who were pushed into using this technique because it was their only choice for survival? The difference well, being that Katara... No, one is, one is not survival in the sense that Ama did it because she had... I think that both of them had no choice left but to use it, yes, but I want to call it survival, right? I mean, I think that freedom... How many very much that what she was doing would drive Katara to the point where she would have no choice but to do this? So, yes, in that what sense I'm, that... What I'm essentially trying to make the, the argument, though, is that the reason that Katara doesn't fall down an incredibly dark path after this is because she has her friends, she has people who support her. Hama was completely alone and had nowhere... I- and in theory, she yeah, probably but... couldn't have gone home because if she went home, she just would have been captured again. So yeah. she is left all to herself and sort of is, has nothing but stewing on her revenge. I'm but she's, wondering... not, she's not evil because of bloodbending. Bending to execute whatever evil thing she wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Bloodbending blood bending is, is not the reason. What I'm... She just... What I'm saying is, to... I think obviously Hama wanted Katara to bloodbend against her in that moment. That she yes. wanted to turn Katara into a bloodbender. And mm-hmm. I think that in some ways she knew she had to recreate the circumstances by which she was willing to make that choice of absolute desperation, absolutely at the end needing, you know, with no hope left. And that she was hoping that she could recreate those conditions, show Katara that she could bloodbend, and then eventually Katara would be so destroyed by the Fire Nation and by this war that she would have to use it and continue it. Which, on some level, 
does happen in Southern Raiders. She does end up using it in one time in the way that theoretically Hama would want her to. I'm, I think, I, I mean, I don't even know about making an argument here. It's kind of more just of an observation. I just think it's interesting. I, I, I like the way that that works. And it, I like the way they continue to play with the morality of Hama, even though, yeah, we know she is, you know, evil and diabolical in what she's doing. I, I do think that they do a good job of leaving the door open so that we can have this type of conversation. And it's not, yeah, she's just all evil 100% and that's it. Yeah, that's certainly, yeah. certainly have something valuable that they did. Um, yeah. I, I think the original situations, yeah, are pretty, but you have to remember that the distinguishment between the two is Hama just continued to do it for, uh, we're assuming, years. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea what the time frame is on how long she's been in No, it's got to be years, because Katara never knew her. So, minimum, okay. we're, you know... And she's old, and we saw how old she was when she was captured. I mean, she was definitely, you know... It, it's been yes. probably these 30 years. Well, I mean, like, I don't... I, I don't know if she kept kidnapping people and then just letting them die in the mountain or whatever. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. She kept doing it. So at the point, at later points, you're going to make the Sovereign Raiders comparison. You know, the episode's coming up, so we'll talk about it later. But uh, I don't think even there it's really that equivalent either. No, I, I don't think it's equivalent at all. I, I think the actions that oh. she's taking, I'm saying what Hama was hoping for was that oh. that's what she wanted out of Katara. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, uh, that's that's right. I mean, just a quick wrap-up point. The the comparison I thought of for whatever reason was, was Gohan <laughs> from from Dragon Ball, just because it's um Charles both... Gohan was not born during Dragon Ball. Wait, what? Wasn't Gohan born? You motherfucker! <laughs> All right, nobody Mark. watched Dragon Ball. <laughs> well, well played. Uh, all right, fine. Dragon Ball Z, but you know the the, the scene where he's watching his friends and family get beat up, and then the head rolls over to him. The sixteen's head rolls over to him. Yes. This shit is very, very simple. Something fair. terrible is happening to your friends. You, on principle, don't want to act against what you. Although I actually think that the, that they reference that scene even more so within the Avatar state when they're trying to force Aang into the Avatar state, and like they have him push Katara underwater, and that's what finally gets him to you know him to snap and kind of release his inner power in a very similar way to Gohan. But I do see your I do see your point. All right, I think we're I think we're gonna wrap this thing up. We've been going for quite a while, but this was an episode I expected it of. So. Why don't we get our final thoughts and our ratings for this episode, The Puppet Master. Corey, why don't you start us off? I love this episode, and I would even argue that final ten minutes of this episode, no, maybe like the final like five minutes of this episode are some of my favorite in all of Avatar, and certainly one of my favorite endings, if not my favorite ending in an Avatar episode. Um, it was like... What an introduction to bloodbending. Um, what a concept, which is bloodbending. And 
bloodbending in this episode is revealed in the best, and when I say best, I mean the worst possible light with the death of the flowers uh, versus the bed of the other flowers, which is was just like, such a cool visual to see. The trees exploding, the sounds that were made every time bloodbending was done, and then how absolutely screwed up Katara was at the end of it to where, like, that's the episode where she, like, you could see that's where she's going to ban bloodbending in the future in Korra. So, like, everything was just done phenomenally. Uh, you know, the beginning of the episode is what it was. I, I understood it as a, a means of just doing a red herring to be like, oh, this, girl, this woman's about to be evil, and then they take that away from you, and you're like, oh, she's not evil, she's actually good, and then they bring it right back and bring it up to 11. So I, I thought this, this is always the episode that stuck with me from my first viewing to my second viewing to now this is my third or fourth time seeing it. I have to say this episode, I, I, I can't give it a 10 out of 10. I would love to just because personally I loved it, but like, you know, being realistic, this episode is definitely like a 9.5 out of 10. Fair. Charles? Charles? Yeah, I mean, this episode is a masterpiece. It, it's not perfect, but you know, it covers such a dark theme in a very interesting way. It brings up, as you mentioned, we haven't seen the Fire Nation is evil side pretty much the entire book until now. It brings up a lot of questions of morality and the good person doing nothing, or do they become evil by doing something evil? It's it's a, the pacing is great. The fact that they managed to tie the two sides in in a in a pretty natural way is also great. Uh, it's just it's not perfect, and maybe part of that is due to the nature of the series. We mentioned a lot that because of its TV rating, there are things you can't do or can't say or can't show. But it's still really, really good. It's one of my favorites. Um, I think I'll, I think I'll give it the same rating, Corey. I'll give it nine point five. Okay, Mitchell, how about you? I think I'll go with a nine point five myself. It's just, I think as an episode, it's. It's quite. It's a. It's a quite profound episode, right? Despite like, the I. I think from the beginning of the episode, you expect that sort of death that you would get from this episode. Not just about you know the world building, but it's you know about the way that it it worked, and I guess just how real it feels, how real it makes the whole situation feel. I think for me, it's definitely a very very good episode, and I'll rate it a nine point five. Okay. I'm going to, for once, be the theoretically positive one, because I'm going to give the highest rating. I think this episode is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it, it is the darkest episode of this show, and goes to places that I am really stunned by how far they go and how well they execute everything. My only real complaint, and I didn't even bring this up during the episode discussion, is I would have liked a little bit more from the prisoner part of this, I think that that's kind of a, a total afterthought. We think of this episode as the bloodbending episode. We think of Hama's evil as bloodbending. The fact that she was literally keeping people captive, I think that they could have done a little bit more with it and maybe had Aang do something. And I think that's the one sort of place that they, they probably could have used a little bit of extra care. 
But other than that, this episode is absolutely phenomenal. So I'll give this a 9.7 out of 10. Um, we had a couple recently really good episodes, um, last week uh, notwithstanding. But you do, you know, this is this is the kind of, we're about to hit the stretch run. You know, we have one more episode and then we're into the invasion. And to kind of introduce something like this now that, that is, you know, it's really quite powerful. I think it's just, it's phenomenal. Um, so yeah, I think that's great. So thank you to my lovely guests, Charles, Corey, and Mitchell. And thank you guys for listening. Um, obviously, we'll be back with what I think is my least favorite episode of the entire series of Nightmares and Daydreams after this. So that's going to go really like well. this worse than The Divide? Yes, <laughs> but we'll... Well, I don't know. I haven't watched it in a while. We'll talk about it. I, I do not like Nightmares and Daydreams, to be completely honest. So we'll, we'll get there. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for, for listening in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for having us. See you guys. See you.